about two years ago, I was on holiday, and uh, I got speaking to a gentleman there, and I said to him, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a doctor. He said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a Bible teacher. He said, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian doctor. He said, you know, when I first became a doctor, I found it very difficult going on a holiday, because people would say to me, what do you do for a living? And he would say, I'm a doctor. And he said, people then roll up their trouser leg, <laughs> take off their shirt and say, what do you think of this? He said, it got quite tiresome, both for me and my wife. So he said, I have found a way out of that. So when I go on a holiday and folks say, what do you do for a living? He said, I replied like this, I'm a doctor. And I see them light up. And then he said, I, I specialize in urology. <laughs> and he said, I see the twinkle disappear from their eyes. When you tell people that you're going to speak for three one-hour sessions on, on Christian history, folks, eyes light up. But when you mention it's three hours on the Plymouth Brethren, it's like uh, historical urology. <laughs> you see the twinkle disappear from people's eyes. Three hours on the Brethren, yes. What is there to say about such an inconsequential title? An awful lot. During the past 12 months, I've uh, brought along some of the books I've been reading. I don't know how many books I've read on, the, on the, the Plymouth Brethren, the Christian Brethren, but I've spent my entire year, when I've not been preaching, reading about the Plymouth Brethren. I also went along to John Ryland's library in Manchester, which holds the archives of all Plymouth Brethren memorabilia, and they actually allowed me to handle J. N. Darby's Greek New Testament. Oh, I'm <laughs> In terms of years of purgatory, that's up there. And uh, it's quite an impressive thing indeed. And also, I visited quite a number of those sites and graves. In fact, I took my wife to Southern Ireland this year for a holiday, and then I just happened to mention, oh, by the way, this is where the Plymouth Brethren started. <laughs> And so we had a few days wandering around Dublin looking at famous brethren sites. There has always been a condescending attitude within the Christian church towards the Plymouth Brethren. Primarily from mainline denominations. You tell people that you come from the brethren, that you worship with the brethren, there's this attitude of, oh. In 1959, the Presbyterian Church of Ireland published a hostile pamphlet on the Plymouth Brethren in a series of pamphlets about dangerous organizations, Jehovah's Witnesses, Communists, Elim Pentecostals, and Plymouth Brethren. That's 1959. And then you hear those kind of little quips when you preach with alliteration where all your points rhyme. You've heard that quip, haven't you? That only three kinds of people alliterate, fools, poets, and Plymouth Brethren. <laughs> And John Angel James, he was uh, a strong evangelical minister in, in Birmingham at Cars Lane. He was followed by, uh, by Mr. Dale, totally different from uh, John Angel James, but he was one of the pioneers of the Evangelical Alliance. And uh, the Evangelical Alliance, uh, well, he proposed a union between dissenting evangelicals, not the Anglican Church, but dissenting sort of evangelicals non-conformists. And he wanted a union to come together in 1842 to combat four evils in our land. Infidelity, popery, puseism, and Plymouth brethrenism. So when we talk about the evangelical alliance these days, believe me, it started on the foundation of going against the Plymouth brethren. And sad to say, there have been the shadowy figures in the world and also inside the church. But also they've had a reputation of just ripping themselves apart. It was W.H.G. Thomas who said, The brethren have this wonderful reputation for rightly dividing the word of God, but wrongly dividing each other. And they have a reputation of splits galore, primarily among the exclusives. In 1957 not too long ago, the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church had this paragraph on the Plymouth Brethren. Emphasis is laid on an unexpected millennium when the Brethren will reign. They renounce secular life generally, allowing their members to practice only medicine and a few handicraft trades. That, that was written in our lifetime. And in 1961, the, uh, the Mother's Union 
published a pamphlet by Dr. Lillian Powles entitled The Faith and Practice of Heretical Sex. One full chapter was given over to the Pentecostals with the brethren getting a mention in the appendix along with the Salvation Army and the Quakers. So isn't it amazing in the last 60 years mainline denominational churches in our country have been sniping at the brethren calling them a sect uh, and a weird group of people. I was asked 12 months ago if I would give three lectures on the history of the brethren in relation to their evangelists. And what I want to do tonight is just lay the land to explain who the brethren were. And I've come to the conclusion that many people who say, I was brought up brethren, they weren't. They were brought up in a mission hall. that was a million miles from the principles of brethrenism. So I want to explain who the brethren were and still are. And then in our next talk tomorrow, I want to show you the impact of the Plymouth Brethren on world evangelism. And I would say, having studied these people and lived with them for the past 12 months, that they have been the greatest evangelists in the Western world in the last 200 years. They put thousands of people onto the mission field. And then in our final talk, I want to kind of come home and show you the impact of uh, the Plymouth Brethren, the Christian Brethren, the Exclusive Brethren on our country. And believe me, our country would be a lot darker were it not for the Plymouth Brethren. I have so immersed myself in these people over these past 12 months that towards the end of the 12 months, when I went to tell my wife a story, it went like this. Can I just press the pause button, David? Is this about the brethren? Because if it is, I've heard enough. <laughs> end of pause button. Now watch your story. Sorry, I've got nothing to say. It was about the brethren. Where does it all start? Brethrenism started as a result of a move of the Holy Spirit in Switzerland. Back in the 19th century, things were beginning to move in Europe. The Holy Spirit started to blow primarily in Switzerland and also mainly in, in Geneva. And such was the move of the Spirit back in the 19th century in that country that it was given the title, the Swiss Revival. In Geneva, a handful of men were, were training for the ministry, for the state church, but became uneasy about what they were being taught. They thought it was all cerebral. They thought it was not personal. There was very little about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was just a business, really. And so these young men, after lectures, used to meet together once a week to study the scriptures and to pray and to ask God to make these things real. It just so happens that in the providence of God, a Scotsman by the name of Robert Haldane found himself in Switzerland and stumbled across these men. And he said, would you like me to lead you in some Bible studies? And so he led them in some Bible studies through the book of Romans. And if you see Robert Haldane's commentary on Romans, that came out of these men desperate to know the things of God in a very personal way. The establishment got very uneasy about young men training for the ministry who were not subjecting themselves to the authority of the church, but putting themselves under the authority of God's word Accountable to no one but God, they became very, very nervous. And so they ordered a ban right across the church in Switzerland saying these things must not be preached on from the pulpit. Number one, Christ's deity. Number two, original sin. Number three, the workings and the efficacy of grace. And number four, predestination. What I find interesting in brackets in my notes is this. Some churches in the UK live as if the ban is in place over here. <laughs> Once you start putting bans like that on young men who are discovering the power of the gospel, really you're pouring petrol onto a fire and the whole thing exploded. And out of this move of the spirit came men like César Milan and also Adolf Monod. César Milan came to this country on nine separate occasions and it almost seems that every time he came, something significant happened. On one occasion he came, a man by the name of, uh, well, he was called John Duncan, but he was later nicknamed Rabbi Duncan, was converted. And, and, and Rabbi Duncan, have you ever seen a picture of Rabbi Duncan, this Church of Scotland minister, who looks like a rabbi? But his understanding of the scriptures of Hebrew was, was, was first class. And uh, he comes out with some wonderful statements in his sermons. I think his most famous is this. When he spoke of Calvary, he said of the Lord Jesus, 
He took damnation for me and took it lovingly. I find that so powerful. And on one occasion, you know, there was a, a lady in his parish who uh, was really struggling to break bread. You know, I'm really not worthy enough. I've had a bad time. And he said to her, Take it. It's a sinner's. It's a sinner's. And I remind myself every time I gather around the table, I'm not here because I'm righteous. I'm here because he's righteous. And the only reason why I'm here is because I'm a sinner. Uh, and to be honest, we're all sinners in the sight of God. Take it. It's a sinner's. So he came to faith in Christ through this man who came out of the Swiss uh, revival. On another visit he made to this country, a young girl he was speaking to was having great problems in accepting his message. It was wonderful, but she thought she was too dirty to receive this message, so she wanted to clean herself up. Then she could receive the message. He said to her, Charlotte, come just as you are. And she said, just as I am? Yes, just as you are. And the rest is history. And that came out of the Swiss revival that was taking place there in, in Geneva. So here's this general unrest in, in Europe. It's, it, it's in Switzerland. It spreads into the Netherlands. It, it comes into, uh, into France. And, and it starts to come across here into our own country. And there was great restlessness within the Church of England. As if we're dead, we're lifeless... We're hearing of great things happening on Europe. They're not happening around here. What's wrong with us? And four young men from the establishment, not necessarily the Church of England, but from well-established denominational churches, got together and said, we've got to do something. You may have heard of one or two of them, but I, I would doubt uh, all of them. Lewis Way, Joseph Wolfe, a man called Henry Drummond, but not the Henry Drummond you know of, who was up in Scotland and who invited uh, D.L. Moody to preach. Henry Drummond, and here's the man you've heard of, Edward Irving. And these four men were establishment men who said, things have got to change. This is dire. And just as in 2010 and 2011, the Arab Spring swept right through the Middle East and, and turned the whole world upside down, then I would say that this, this wind of revival that was blowing through Europe and now coming into Britain was beginning to turn the established church upside down. Many Anglican clergymen got to the stage where they thought, I can't carry on here any longer. I've got to get out. And the Church of England, at the beginning of uh, the 1820s, the 1830s, saw a lot of ministers leave them because of the deadness of the church. The idea that you're in it to win it they said it's a waste of time. We'll never win it. And what is interesting is this. It's fascinating reading the final sermons of these vicars before they left the church. It's kind of, if I'm going to go out, it's with two barrels. And uh, I was reading some of the things that these vicars were saying to their congregations as they left. One man called the Church of England a cage of unclean birds. Another man said, when I speak of the new birth in the fraternal within my diocese, I am told that this is an odious peculiarity that we do not want here. The Reverend William Lincoln, he saw the truth of the new birth, and then having repented of being baptized, he was told, the Anglican Church is not for you with this kind of stuff. And so he preached his final sermon. He entitled it, The Javelin of Phineas. <laughs> now, you've got to understand Scripture to understand that, but, you know, this... I'm going to stab the church with one final go. And that was the end of his time within the Anglican Church. Now, abandoning the faith is one thing. Abandoning the church is another thing. But abandoning the church but wanting to keep your faith is very hard. What do you do when the church that you're in, you feel is stifling the gospel and is dead, and you feel that you've got something which is alive? What do you do? Where do you go with it? And that was the problem that was faced in the 1820s within our country. Things were happening also among the Quakers. If you know anything about the Plymouth Brethren, you know that they, the hallmark of any Brethren meeting is gathering around the Lord's table, where you sit quietly and you wait on the Lord, and if you have a word, an exposition of Scripture, then you stand up and, and give that word. You may be surprised to know this, but it is historically true that a good number of the early Brethren were Quakers. 
and, and they brought with them this sense of let sense be done, let flesh retire, speak through the earthquake, wind and fire, oh still small voice of God. A lot of Quakers around the 1820s and 30s were becoming very disillusioned with Quakerism. It was relying more on the inner light than the word of God. And uh, if you really read George Fox, and George Fox had a, a great deal to do with the area around which I live in Lancashire, and going up to Levens Hall and then swinging round near Oberston, he, he, was, he was all around there. It's kind of the most fascinating area. Uh, as you begin to kind of read Fox seriously, with scripture in one hand, analysing what he was saying, a lot of what he said, I said this very carefully, was just religious mysticism. I'm not saying he wasn't a saved man, because sometimes, even as God's people, we come out with rubbish. In fact, I, I cringe at the rubbish I've come out with, but I'm, I think I'm still saved. <laughs> By the way, this is not rubbish, this is the truth. I'm just giving you history. And, and some, some Quakers were saying, hang on a minute, this inner light business, how can we test it? It's like when someone comes and says, the Lord has told me. How do you test that? It's very hard, isn't it? And, and so a man called Isaac Crudson of Kendall, Kendall was a big Quaker centre, he, he wrote a book which really just set the whole thing alight, where he began to question, wait a minute, are we Bible people or are we spirit people? Or are we just mysticism dread? Sorry, lead. The whole thing then created lots of, of arguments within. And in the end, a lot of Quakers had to get out. You've heard of a man called Luke Howard famous in the world of meteorology if you google Luke Howard you'll see that he was a mega influence in the 19th century in, in terms of the weather and all that kind of stuff he had to leave the Quakers because of his strong evangelical belief I remember going to, down to London to try and find his grave and I, I found the Quaker uh, meeting place where he used to meet uh, and I just kind of quietly went into the, to the meeting place uh, and there was a man there cleaning the place up and uh, obviously I shocked him. He said, good God. I said, no, it's David Earnshaw. <laughs> he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I, I, I've come to look for Luke Howard. I know he's buried here. He said, well, I don't know where he is, but I know he's somewhere around here. And he's buried in the same little Quaker burial ground as uh, David Barclay, founder of Barclays Bank. Since then, since then, they've actually put a stone on his grave. I don't take any credit for it, but, but who knows, it could be down to me. Just jumping on a little bit, when Luke Howard left the Quakers, because he had to, he, he rented a chapel in London and uh, he started to break bread. Within three years of leaving the Quakers and breaking bread, he had 88 people gather around the Lord's table on a Sunday morning. Guess who became one of the members there? A Yorkshireman called Hudson Taylor. And before Hudson Turner went out onto the mission field, he went down to London and he fellowshiped in the assembly that was founded by Luke Howard. And whenever Hudson Turner came back to this country, it was to that assembly he went and he received great uh, benefit from the ministry of, of the Howard family. The Howards became big brethren people and certainly big in the world of chemical manufacturing. And when I mention Quakers, Benjamin Wills Newton, he was a Quaker massive brain he was at the heart of brethrenism also a man called James Wright James Wright married George Muller's daughter he was a Quaker and Samuel Tregevis buried down in Plymouth probably the greatest Greek scholar in the land at that time he was a Quaker who became disillusioned with this mystical approach to Christianity and he joined the Christian brethren so this spiritual unrest is, is, is going around the country. People are leaving the Quakers, they're leaving the Church of England. Some are leaving what you call dissenting churches, Baptist churches, congregational churches, saying there's a lethargy, there's death here, we need life. That kind of move was not only found in this country, it was also found in Southern Ireland. And really, Brethrenism started in Dublin where one man called Dr. Edwin Cronin, rather than complain about the darkness, he said, I'm going to strike a match to bring some light to do something different. 
Cronin was a Cork dental student who later became a doctor and then a big pioneer in homeopathy. And by the way, a lot of the brethren became big on homeopathy. Dr. Benjamin Kidd was the homeopathic doctor to Benjamin Disraeli. And uh, I was only reading this today. I was just reading a biography which I happened to pick up in the library. And uh, this was quite interesting of a lady who was quite unwell. And she said, my mother taught me to see iodine kid. And she explained that almost every time you saw him, it was iodine will sort you out. Iodine will sort you out. It has now been proved to be quite an important ingredient in giving us medical and physical health, as it were. But, but he was... He was a Plymouth Brethren who was looking after this Disraeli. That's the kind of influence these, these people had. Well, here's Cronin. He's a, a court dental student who became a doctor. He was a converted Roman Catholic. He's in the Church of Ireland. And then he suddenly said to himself, this is not why I left Rome. I've jumped from one dead church to another dead church. This is not ministering to me at all. Out of sheer desperation, on a Sunday morning... He used to go out of Dublin and sit under a tree in a field in the summer, just reading the scriptures and meditating. When his presence was noticed as not being in the church, people said, where are you, Dr. Cronin? He said, I'm reading and praying. Can we join you? And in a short period of time, there were seven people, a man called Edward Wilson, the Jewry sisters, his two sisters, the Cronin sisters, and uh, a Mr. Timms, seven of them, sat under a tree in a field every Sunday, just talking about the things of Christ and praying about a move of God in the nation. It grew, and in the end, they had to move. They started meeting in the home of Mr. Wilson, but it grew so much. They had to rent some premises in Orangia Street, and you'll see a little display that I put on the board that I found in Dublin. I actually found the house where it all started. Uh, I could have brought five or six boards of all the photographs I've got, but I didn't want to kind of boil all that kind of stuff. They met there. It became so full that they then had to move to another street, and, uh, and they started to meet there in the streets up there as well. By the way, people were coming from all walks of spiritual life. There was a young Church of Ireland minister who was falling out with bishops, archbishops, <laughs> clergymen, falling out with his congregation. If he was free, because he'd heard that there were people serious about the things of God meeting in Dublin, if he was free, he would come along in all his clerical gowns. His name? J.N. Darby. I find it quite interesting that if you walked into a Brethren Assembly these days with a dog collar on and clerical gowns, you would not get beyond the welcoming brother. And yet here's Darby at the beginning of Brethrenism, sitting there in his clerical robes. And they accepted him. Because this group of people, they were known as evangelical malcontents. What was taking place in Dublin started to happen in Plymouth. And it's interesting that they're called the Plymouth Brethren, when really they should be called the Dublin Brethren. Because that's where it really started in Dublin. But what happened in Dublin was, was replicated in Plymouth. And what I find interesting is this, another dentist, a man by the name of Anthony Norris Groves. So how interesting that here's Dr. Enwood Croning, a dentist, and here's another dentist, Anthony Norris Groves, not only down in the mouth in their work, <laughs> but also down in the mouth of what was happening in the nation. They likewise, he likewise became disillusioned with the Church of England. He was training to be ordained as a clergyman, and he was under a gentleman in Dublin. And so on a regular basis, he used to go back and forth from the Devon Cornwall area to, to Dublin to get tuition, and then he would come back. He set on one side £400 for his final trip to pay for his tuition, to pay for his exams, to pay for his ordination, you know, ceremony and pay for his gowns, and then to go right into the ministry. Somebody stole the £400. And over 200 years ago, £400 is a lot of money. He took that as a sign from the Lord. He must go no further down that road. And so he said, I'm, I'm not coming again. I don't want to be an ordained clergyman. And uh, I don't want to be involved with you anymore. 
and he never was. And, and so he began to meet in the Plymouth area to talk about the things of God, just like they were doing in Dublin. And so you can see there's this move of the Spirit, Switzerland, France, the Netherlands, Great Britain, moving into Southern Ireland, people wanting spiritual reality but not finding it in the church. And by the way, these early movers and shakers in the Plymouth Brethren were not like the primitive Methodists or the Bible Christians, people at the lower end of society. These men were up there. Let me just run through the early founders of the Plymouth Brethren and tell you the kind of people they were. John Nelson Darby, J.N. Darby. Why was he called Nelson? Because his godfather was Lord Nelson. That tells you high up, how high up he was in the country. His father was a very rich landowner and sent his son to Trinity College in Dublin to study for the bar. He came out with a gold medal in classical languages. And when he told his father that he didn't want to be at the bar, but he wanted to be a minister, his father cut him out of the will and he never received a penny from his father. He lost everything. I mentioned Edward Cronin from Cork, uh, who, uh, who was a dentist, pioneer in homeopathy. Lord Congleton was an MP. Percy Hall was a captain in the King's Navy. George Wigram was a great Greek and Hebrew scholar in the country. Henry Saltow was a Cambridge lawyer. Benjamin Wills Newton was an Oxford graduate and scholar. Samuel Trigavis, I've told you, probably the leading Greek scholar in the country at that time. Henry Craik, you'll learn about these men in a few minutes, and he's on the board, there's a picture of him. And I had great joy in, in uncovering his grave in Bristol. I almost wept. Because this man led thousands to Christ. He was offered two honorary doctorates. And he turned both of them down. He said, what, what good are these for soul winning? That's the kind of man he was. William Kelly. Again, he was another great, outstanding Greek scholar. William Kelly had a nephew who trained for Trinity. And he was going to train in the classics. And so the nephew saw his uncle and said, Uncle, I'm, I'm going to Trinity. Could you help me out with some languages? When the nephew arrived in Trinity College in, in, in Dublin... The lecturer was astounded that this first-year student was fluent in Greek. He said, where have you got this from, son? He said, from my uncle. She said, do you mind bringing your uncle in? So he brought his uncle in, William Kelly, this, this brilliant Greek scholar, and he offered him a job at Trinity. And, and William Kelly said, that's demotion. Why bring me down to that level? I'm in the business of pointing people to the Lord Jesus. William Wellesley was the Duke of Wellington's nephew. He was a Plymouth Brethren, and I mentioned Dr. William Kidd. And by the way, all these men were in their early 20s and 30s. So here are brilliant minds. Most of them came from an Anglican, Quaker background, high up in society, but disillusioned with what was going on in the church, and they saw a move of God. In Plymouth, a man called George Wigram, most interesting character. He finished up with the exclusives, and uh, I don't think his, his grave's up there. No, it isn't, but I found his grave down in Paddington. Uh, interesting little stone. Uh, he, he bought a chapel in, in Plymouth in 1931. He said, I, I don't want to give the local vicars that I'm in competition. So we'll meet on a Monday evening, and, and we'll talk about the things of God. Well, the world and his wife came. Even, even clergymen incognito came, you know, too afraid to nail their colour to the mass, but they came for spiritual help and, and for spiritual benefit. After a while, there were so many meetings on a Monday that somebody said, is this not the church? Why don't we break bread? And so they began to break bread on a Monday evening as well as uh, study the scriptures. Before long, they said, look, let's, let's be realistic. Let's move to Sunday. So they moved to Sunday. Within 10 years, there were over 800 people breaking bread in this assembly in Plymouth on a Sunday morning. By 1845, that number had grown to 1,200 people. Not all of them were disillusioned church people. A good number of them were converted people who had been born again by the Spirit of God. And the church was growing and so Dublin, 
Plymouth, Hereford, Bristol, Western Supermare became big brethren centres. And the thing that brought all these people together in the early 1800s was four things. Number one, they were looking for the true church. Number two, they wanted to know what it was to be a member of the real priesthood. Number four, three, they were passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were looking for the return of their saviour. And those were the four ingredients, really, that brought all these hundreds of people together, looking for the true church, tired of this autocratic clericalism in the church, that, that you can only do anything if you've got a degree and a collar stuck round your neck. You know, that's not the church, they said. And so they rebelled against that, looking for the gospel and for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine... What it was like in those early days with all these people gathered around the Lord's table on a Sunday morning. 800. At times it went terribly wrong and on, time, on occasions it was absolutely heaven on earth. Because it was going wrong more often than going right, they thought that perhaps we need a stronger grip on the table. And so they had presiding elders who would allow people to speak or not to speak because they knew them as if no thank you brother sit down we've heard you before and because they were strong they managed to bring the brethren through those difficult times and then when the standard was set they could then let down the fence a little bit so that people then were free to exercise their ministry what is interesting is this one of the early pioneers of brethrenism Benjamin Wills Newton rebuked a woman in public around the Lord's table for not exercising her speaking gift. In the early days, I am not kind of digging this up from some, you know, bizarre little book written by some weird man with a feminist wife. In the early days, women were allowed to minister around the Lord's table. Because really the Lord's table was not for preaching. It was not for teaching. It was for sharing thoughts about the Lord Jesus to say, you know, I was meditating on God's word this week and I just had this glimpse of the Savior. Can I just share it with you? It really helped my soul. Is, is that ministry? Benjamin Wills Newton said, that's not ministry. That's encouraging the body of Christ. Sister, you're good at that. Why are you quiet so often? The study of prophecy then became a driving force within brethrenism. And these days you mentioned brethren, second coming, rapture, here goes. Hold on to your seats. Let me tell you of three significant things that were taking place in the 1800s. You may have heard of some, but probably not all of them. First of all, down in Albury, in Surrey, the Albury Park Conferences took place. This is where about 40 people met together on a number of occasions, key people, to ask the question, is there a future for Israel as revealed in the Word of God? And is the book of Revelation for today? Now I find it quite interesting that 200 years ago there were people discussing this kind of stuff. And these were well-to-do people who were quite influential in the Christian church. The main driving force behind this conference was Edward Irving. And his biographies on there are published by the Banner of Truth. Irvin made a statement that he believed that the Lord Jesus would return by 1868 at the latest. But no later. Well, obviously he got it wrong. But it got people talking. And there's nothing like the second coming to get people talking. So everyone was discussing, are these the end days? Is there a place for Israel? Will they return to the land? Is Revelation going to be fulfilled in our generation? And little societies sprang up all over the country with bizarre names like the Society for the Investigation of Prophecy. One man was popular at all these meetings, going around speaking. He was called Mr. Marsh, but was given the nickname Millennial Marsh, because that's all he ever spoke on. The millennium's almost here. So, so all that took place down in Albury. Then suddenly they came to a close. As the Albury Compasses came to a close, something else happened. Over in Dublin, just south of Dublin, there is a place called Powers Court. It's still there today, and I, I took my wife to Powers Court. 
it's the National Geographic say it is the third best garden they've seen in the world and as a horticulturist it is awesome and uh, I went into Palace Court it's a huge huge palatial kind of country home and, and Lady Powers Court who was converted her husband died but she got converted she began to buy into some of the stuff that was going on in Dublin and so she called a conference to invite all those who were interested in discussing apostasy the state of the church and prophecy how many turned up? 400 who turned up? George Muller, Henry Crick, J.N. Darby, Benjamin Wills Newton, Henry Salto, Sir Edward Denny, W.G. Ryan, Captain Percy Hall. And they had this discussion should we stay in the established churches or get out? You see, if we're in it to win it, how long do we stay in to know that we're winning, and what is the finishing line? And they all agreed, generally speaking, that the church was apostate and finished. And really that was the kind of the capstone of the brethren beginning. These men came back from Powers Court saying, yeah, I can't see the church ever getting back to what it was in the Acts of the Apostles. Therefore we've got to leave the church uh, and we've got to start meeting and just praying that God will move by his spirit upon us and we make the best of it. When I visited Powers Court, I uh, kind of took the bull by the horns. My wife said, you're on your own. So she went off looking at the shop. And uh, I asked to speak to the person who was in charge, who had the most authority there. And I said, this is a bizarre thing to say to you. But I said, uh, 200 years ago, a very significant meeting took place here. In fact, there was three or four Powers Court conferences and uh, some world-famous Christians met here to discuss the return of the Lord Jesus. She said, I'll take you to the room. I just stood there. <laughs> Having just handled J.N. Darby's Bible a few months ago, I was almost there, just savoring the atmosphere. And then I, I went and got my wife and brought her into the good things of God. <laughs> Stand here, I said, and breathe deeply. So I, I stood where these, these people discussed these great things. While most of them agreed on the state of the church, prophecy then came on the agenda. Now you have to understand this. All these early Plymouth brethren, who were, wouldn't have called themselves brethren in those days, they were trying to define who they were, all of them were futurists when it came to the second coming in the book of Revelation. They believed the book of Revelation has yet to happen. And so they had big discussions. Well, how is it going to happen? How is scripture going to be fulfilled? Now, sad to say, many people, because they are misinformed, say that J.N. Darby was the one who started the whole teaching on the rapture. You know, oh, it goes back to J.N. Darby and his... No, 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 no. In these early days, you can read the Powers Court papers, and I've got a book there with all the Powers Court papers and what they discussed in the letters. J.N. Darby was very open-minded on the rapture. He, he, he didn't know. It was, it was on the horizon, it was being discussed, and that's my next point. It was being discussed. But George Muller, George Wigram, Benjamin Wills Newton came down on the side that the church will go through the tribulation and then Christ will come. That is called classic pre-millennialism. Okay? They didn't dispute the rapture, they just said no. As we read scripture, God always takes his people through the hard times, but he preserves them. When J.N. Darby eventually came off the fence and came down on the rapture side, he was vitriolic against anyone who disagreed with him. And he accused those who believed that the church would go through the tribulation as getting their teaching from Satan. That's pretty strong indeed. Oh, by the way, let me just tell you this, and if you're ever in discussion with people who are hot on these things, just put this up your sleeve. When J.N. Darby was in Switzerland, he announced the date of the return of Christ. 1842. And in case you haven't realized, 
He's 175 years old. We are still here. This is not paradise. There were three, in the end, powers court conferences where they discussed all these things. It welded some people together and made the brethren strong. It scattered the others. Sadly, the teaching of the second coming became the only thing for which the brethren were known over the years and has become an issue of great contention. And even Mr. Spurgeon, he could be very derogatory of the brethren at times, yet greatly admired those scholars. In one of his sermons on the second coming, here's Mr. Spurgeon, true Spurgeon style. Can you imagine preaching in the Metropolitan Tabernacle? There are good brethren in the world who are impractical. The grand doctrine of the second advent makes them stand with open mouths, peering into the skies, so that I am ready to say, Ye men of Plymouth, why stand ye here gazing up into heaven? When you tell people who are brethren to their boots that the bulk of the early Plymouth brethren were non-rapture people, they'll probably rush for the nearest defibrillator because that many folk will be having heart attacks in the assembly. But it is historically true. Most of the early Plymouth brethren were not any moment rapture people. They believed that the church would go through the tribulation. It's only because of the strong-mindedness of people like J.N. Darby that really this became the dominant teaching. And sometimes it almost seems, isn't it, the louder people shout, the more they get heard. You know that sometimes in church meetings. You know, sometimes people are unhappy, they shout very loud. It's the whole church pastor, when really it's just him and his wife. In fact, to be honest, it's his wife. <laughs> Thankfully, she was wearing a hat when she said that. But <laughs> and then thirdly, you need to know not only just about the Albury Conference and the Powers Court Conference, <coughs> but also Port Glasgow. In Glasgow, two shipyard workers called James and George MacDonald and their sister, Mary MacDonald, began to hold meetings in their house to wait on the Lord. There's no doubting the fact there was manifestation of tongues, Prophetic statements were made, and there was a great emphasis on healing. And to my understanding, some folk would disagree, it's not very clear to work out what was going on historically. It seems that it was there in Glasgow that this two-tier approach to the return of Christ really appeared. And so suddenly there's all this excitement. Oh, the Lord's coming to take his church away, and look, he's poured out his Holy Spirit to get the church ready for that. This was no storm in a teacup. Oh no. J.N. Darby, along with George Wigram, travelled all the way from Plymouth to Glasgow to witness this themselves. And both came away convinced this was not of God, but they did not close their minds to the moving of the Holy Spirit and who knows, the manifestation of gifts. So even some of the early brethren were open to the gifts of the Spirit but seriously question this two-tier rapture. With all this swirling around, very, very kind of confusing days, like I say, the hour of spring, until eventually things settle down, when things settle down, seven principles glued these people together. What were they? Number one, the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread is always the hallmark of a true brethren. That you start the week around the Lord's table, breaking bread, saying, Thank you, Father, for giving us your son. Number two, they believed in the full participation of male members. So no clergy, no laity. I go and preach every now and then in a brethren assembly, and they always announce me as Mr. Earnshaw. You know, don't, don't say he's a minister. He's our brother. Unless I could cope with that. I don't, don't get too stressed over reverend and pastor, those kind of things. Mr. Spurgeon said, the trouble with the brethren view of the body of Christ is that every brother is a mouth. And sometimes the brethren, in abolishing one-man ministry, produced any-man ministry. A kind of do-it-yourself clergy. And who hasn't been in those situations when people ill-equipped to speak really should be sitting down? Thirdly, mission was a driving force of brethrenism. 
And that's what we're going to be focusing on for the next two lectures. They were passionate about mission. And everyone talks about, oh, William Carey was the founder and father of modern day mission. I don't dispute that. But hang on a minute. I would say that outside of William Carey, the most important person for, for mission in the last 200 years was Anthony Norris Groves. Yet who's heard of him? And yet when we touch on Groves, I will list all the people who read him and were inspired to go onto the mission field. He was buried in Bristol. His grave was covered up by three feet of earth. And uh, I remember going down one Saturday quite clearly with my spade. I looked this way. I looked that way. And uncovered his grave. Photographed it. It's probably now been covered up. So you've got to see a photograph there that very few people have ever seen. And to think, wow. To think that the giants of the Plymouth Brethren Church stood here to put this man into the ground. Who I would call a pioneer of mission. He went out to Baghdad during a raging famine to offer people Christ. And he took with him the brother of Cardinal Newman. John Henry Newman, he had a brother, brother called Francis Newman. He took him with him to be an evangelist. We'll go into that as well. They were big on mission. Fourthly, over time, they became big on prophecy. And became pre-millennial. You couldn't survive long in the brethren if you weren't pre-millennial. Amazingly, F.F. Bruce did. F.F. Bruce was post-millennial. How he did that, I really don't know. And G.H. Lang, who then became an exclusive and had a big influence, by the way, on the life of Roger Forster, G.H. Lang was the one who introduced the partial rapture. Now, this may be double dutch to some of you. On one occasion, F.F. Bruce was in a public conference and it came to question time. And someone said to Professor Bruce, Professor, is the teaching of the partial rapture in the Bible? Oh, what a question. What a diplomatic answer. He said, it may well be, but I've not yet found it. <laughs> Number five, they were big on the gospel. <coughs> At times the brethren could be very boring, but they never lost the gospel. And you can go in a true gospel hall. It may be slightly dated these days, but you can go in a true gospel hall and in some shape or form hearing the, hear the preaching of the gospel. They were driven by the gospel. They were gospel people and their churches were gospel churches. Sixthly, the word of God wasn't just their supreme authority, it was their sole authority. If it's not in the word of God, we don't want to know it. And so out went christenings, confirmation, out went harvest festivals, out went worldly gimmicks. Well, it's not in God's word, we're not having it here. Out it goes. And I remember when I was growing up, I mean, the schools that I went to were Church of England primary schools. And everyone had been christened and had godparents. I remember going home because I come from a Plymouth Brethren background and saying to my parents, who are my godparents? <laughs> It was almost, wash your mouth out, son. God knows. <laughs> and seventhly, separation from the world was key to them. Come out from among them and be separate. Be not unequally yoked. You see, the world is corrupt, it's dying, and the church is now becoming like the world, so get out of the church. That's why true... Plymouth Brethren, in their history, had very little to do with denominations because they thought they were corrupt. I mean, what's the point of us coming out of you to form the Brethren and then playing footsie under the table with you? It doesn't make sense. And so that's why they kept themselves very much to themselves. The church is totally corrupt. And we're here not to Christianize society, which we hear a lot of these days. We're here to win souls for eternity. That's why, generally speaking, you will not find throughout their history, in the early days, Plymouth Brethren getting involved in politics, trade unions. That's the world. Let the world deal with those things. We'll deal with gospel things. And so they had all these songs and hymns about keep yourself from the world. I remember sitting around the Lord's table on a Sunday morning, singing a hymn by Alexander Stewart. Shut in with thee, far, far above. 
the restless world it wars below. As if we've come to higher things. We leave the world behind. These days, we've almost gone the other way. Having said that, they did go over the top. But maybe not so much over the top. The co-op was founded in Rochdale. And uh, the brethren thought that giving everyone their divvy number. Remember your divvy number? Anyone younger than me will not know what I'm talking about. What, what I mean by divvy and what you mean by divvy are two different things, okay. But you had a divvy number. It was the original chip and pin. The brethren said, this is a sign of the dragnet of Satan. Do not shop at the co-op. But you know, 200 years on, maybe they have a point. Not about the co-op, but about the way things are going. They grew. In 90 years, they had 1,200 assemblies in England and Wales. And by 1959, 1,700 assemblies. That's big. Their growth can be measured by the fact that, for a start, they had their own printing presses. John Ritchie, Pickering and Ingalls, and others as well, producing readable theology for the person in the pew, and lots of wholesome Christian literature for young people. They also have their own magazines, The Witness, The Harvester, The Believer's Magazine, I'll explain in a minute how the Brethren split into open and exclusives. The exclusives in London alone had 11 monthly magazines that they circulated around themselves. Now, most denominations in this country have the Baptist Times or, you know, the Congregational Gazette, and now they're, on, they're online. These magazines are still going after 200 years, just producing information about the Plymouth Brethren. Also, they had their own hymn books. Do you know any denomination that has three hymn books? Hymns of Light and Love, and the Believer's Hymn Book, and the Hymns of God's Little Chosen Flock. By the way, you may laugh at that, but the hymns in that book for God's Chosen Little Flock, they're all in the plural. How many of our hymns start with I? When we worship, we worship as we we as a fellowship come into the presence of our God. And, and there's nothing worse than being in a prayer meeting where someone's having a quiet time and everyone else is just looking on. And you want to say, excuse me, there's 40 other people here. You are praying on behalf of all of us because this is the church. And so in their hymn book, when they worship, they said, we worship as a flock together coming to the shepherd. I think that's profound theology. You, you cross out all the eyes and, and, you know, I just want to worship and I just want to lift up your name. And I... Oh. There was no need to come to church to sing that. You could have done that at home. But we do it together. Very, very powerful. Because they were full of high-powered people with big brains, very influential, very strong personalities. Surprise, surprise. There's bound to be an explosion. And sure enough, it exploded into the open brethren and to the exclusive brethren. People think, oh, the exclusives weren't very good at evangelizing. No, they were in the early days. They were very passionate about evangelism. Sad to say, they divided. It's very hard to explain in just a minute. It would take an hour to explain, as most church splits are very difficult to explain. It was over church government. Some wanted more openness to the Spirit, Others said, no, once we open to the Spirit, he gets up, he gets up, she gets up. It's a nightmare. That doesn't bless my soul. Some went more to having pastors. George Muller and Henry Craig were like two pastors in the assembly at Bristol. George Muller said, that's too dictatorial. Where's the Spirit? And while, while Jane Darby was over in Switzerland evangelizing, Benjamin Wills Newton became very powerful in the Plymouth Assembly. And when he came back, he said, I don't like that either. There was huge ructions, and sad to say, they fell out. Benjamin Wills Newton and J.M. Darby fell out. What often happens when two important Christians fall out? You then have what is called uh, second-degree separation. Two brothers fall out. 
Well, I know that you're a friend of his, even though you're not involved in the battle, so I'm not going to speak to you either. And so J.N. Darby, I'm putting it in very simple terms, said, if you are a friend of Benjamin Wills Newton and agree with him, I'm cutting you off. I ain't got a minute. George Mother was a friend of Benjamin Wills Newton. So was George Wicker. All these, you're cutting those people off. And, and this man who had a genius, J.N. Darby was a genius. He was almost like a schizophrenic. He, 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 he could almost have converts from the woman's own. You know, whatever he preached, he saw people coming to the Lord. He planted assemblies. When J.N. Darby went to, to, to Germany, there was such a move of God through his preaching that even today, in parts of Germany, the brethren are called Darbyites. That's how powerful it was. So with one hand he's building the church, with the other hand he's pulling it down because of his strong personality. He should have been told, you keep your hands off that. You just carry on evangelizing. We'll run the church. Well, they split. And when the exclusives split from the open brethren, within ten years, the exclusives went through six different splits. And virtually split themselves into, into deadness. They had their critics. How can I begin to wrap it up and just uh, set the scene for what we're going to come tomorrow? They had their critics, and, and rightly so. People who looked at them, you know, fighting over the second coming, fighting over church government, saying, well, you've come out from us, but in reality, a few years down the road, you're no different from what we are. So what was all that about? And then, this open business. You know, as a pastor, I know the problem of this. You either become a dictator and you run everything past you and folk go, oh, it's just a one-man show here, pastor. And so you then make it open. But the more open you get, you know, weird stuff goes on. I remember opening up a fellowship I was in on one Sunday. I wasn't there and we began to open up. And I brought a friend in who came from a very reformed background. So, so this man stood up and said, not, not the man who was preaching, a man from my congregation said, I had a dream last night. And I just saw my reputation just going down the drain, going, oh, you stupid man. <laughs> and I just imagined this man going back saying, guess what's going on in David Herschel's church? They now live by dreams. You know, it was just, uh, so what do you do? Do you vet everything or do you not? And uh, so there were lots of people getting up who were speaking, and it, it was the dregs of brethrenism. One man went to a, a meeting in Dublin and wrote this, the speakers were all uneducated men of the artisan class, and without a single exception, their effort at display in the use of big words and abortive attempts at oratory left no room for any feeling but that of disgust. And then there's this classic situation where there's a meeting in, in, in Plymouth, and a right collector who's got one eye and one leg he stood up and said, I want to share a word from the Lord, but I can't read. So I'm going to ask the brother next to me to read the passage about the washing of feet. <laughs> so the brother next to him, you know, found the passage and, and, and read about the washing of one another's feet. And, and then he sat down. And then the one-eyed, one-legged right-gatherer said, we ought to do so literally, for that would be our duty. And at which stage, Benjamin Wills Newton stood up and said, brother... It appears to me that what you are saying is not to edification, and I beg you in the name of Jesus, stop. So the man sat down. See, that's the danger of opening up. And those are the kind of teething problems they went through. Joseph Philpot, he became a strict and particular Baptist. He started his days with the open brethren. Oh, he was scathing. He described the brethren like this. An aristocratic atmosphere, a kind of Madeira climate, which suits the tender lungs of gentility. Gentlemen and ladies, dissatisfied with the carnal forms of the established church, can join the Plymouth Brethren without being jostled by vulgar dissenters, that's dissenters like Baptists and Congregationists. Baronets and honourables throw a shield of protection over the meaner refugees. Hmm. The most scathing of them was C.H. Spurgeon. Which is interesting, because C.H. Spurgeon was premillennial in his theology. C.H. Spurgeon was committed to the word of God. And yet these people galled him, even though he admired some of their individuals. 
writing one day to the Plymouth Brethren, he said this, Plymouth Brethren, delight to fish at some hitherto undiscovered tadpole of interpretation and cry it around the town as a rare dainty. Let us be content with the more ordinary and wholesome fishery. Mm. He said of William Kelly, this brilliant Greek scholar, he said, William Kelly has a mind for the universe which has been narrowed by Darbyism. Oof, that was pretty scathing. Well, I could go on and on and on. Let me just say a couple of things in closing. They tied themselves in knots. Over the years, they, they tied themselves in knots. And in my final lecture, I just want to give you five reasons why I believe Plymouth Brethrenism is almost dead within the nation. But just saying generally, I mean, when the second and third generation came along, Mr. Lang, John Lang, who was a big builder and a brethren, he was building cinemas. Now, interesting, isn't it? I mean, is this not the world, Mr. Lang? So it's okay from Monday to Friday, but around the Lord's table, that's the world and that is wrong. So they tied themselves in knots over that. Also, Swains, they were the main stained glass makers and fitters in the country. They were run by the brethren. So from Monday to Friday, we're putting stained glass windows in Anglican churches. But then on a Sunday, we're meeting around the Lord's table with a tuning fork, because this is the real church of God. It's kind of, hang on a minute, what about Monday to Friday? And, and I was brought up with the Plymouth Brethren, where you could ride a bike six days a week, thou shalt ride a cycle. But not on the Lord's Day, you walk to the assembly. You can only use public transport on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, if you're going to preach. You know, but outside of that, that's the world. And so, I wasn't brought up in this kind of home, but I had friends who were brought up in homes where on the Lord's Day, all games were put away. And then this strange, strange phenomenon. Eventually the television was allowed, but on the Lord's Day it was covered with an antimacassar so that we couldn't see the screen. Think, well, why are you covering the screen then? And if you did watch it, you watched the news and nature programs. But of course, these days we have to turn down the volume because of David Attenborough, because what he says is unbiblical. You know, and they began to undo themselves like this. Let me just read to you in closing some of the big pioneers of brethrenism, but also where they stood in the nation. Peak Freen Biscuits. Yep. Huntington Stone. Carr's Biscuits. His real brethren, Jonathan Carr. Lang's the Builders, John Lang. Leading surgeon in the country. Arthur Rendell Short. The head of the CID, who was given the challenge of finding Jack the Ripper, Robert Anderson. Philip Goss and John Howard, both members of the Royal Society. Founder of Lloyd's Bank, Samuel and Samson Lloyd. Berger Paints, that were then taken over by ICI, William Berger. The wife of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Donald Coggan's wife, Jean Coggan. Field Marshal of the British Army, Edmund Allenby. And it was Allenby who rode into Jerusalem, and when he came, he got off his horse and said, If my Saviour rode on a donkey, I've no right to ride in a city on a horse. Allenby started off in the Church of England but finished up in the Brethren. And when it was said to him, I hear you've fallen out with the Church of England, he replied, I never thought the Church of England was worth falling out with. <laughs> Ord Wingate. Churchill was a great admirer of Wingate and his chindits. He was a Plymouth brethren. It was said of Wingate he was reared on a diet of porridge, bread, dripping, and the sincere milk of the Word of God. Wilson Carlyle, founder of the church army. Yeah, converted in the Brethren Assembly. Thomas Bernardo. Yeah, spent most of his life with the Christian brethren. William Collingwood, John Linnell, members of the Royal Academy. And then I mentioned the Swain born brothers, stained glass people. These, these weren't pygmies. 
These were giants in our country. And not all of them were tied up in worldly nonsense or tying themselves in knots over silly things. Some of these men were passionate about the gospel. And what I find fascinating is this. Most of these men took hold of their money and used it not to build an empire, but to get the gospel out into the world. Every time you have a peak free biscuit, I'll tell you about Hunter and Stone, that man put hundreds of men on the mission field out of his own pocket. Quirks? How about this as a quirk? We all have quirks. The brethren didn't like to sign their name at the end of a book. So a good brethren book just has initials, which I find quite frustrating. But what is interesting is this. They all have three initials. <laughs> here they are. They were somewhere around here. ANG, Anthony Norris Gross. BWN, Benjamin Wills Newton. CHM, Charles Henry McIntosh. AHB, Edward Harmer Broadband. FF Bruce. GH Lang. JB Stoney. FE Raven. WG Rind. JG Deck. And HA Ironside. Kind of interesting. Is it any coincidence that I am DS Earnshaw? And that Roger Cargill is just Roger Cargill? <laughs> Tomorrow, we'll look at the impact that these men made on the world. And if you found this a little bit tiresome and, 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 and heavy, Tomorrow is far more interesting. Let's just pray together.